so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, once again, welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders today. Well, we got our work cut out for it for us if we are, in fact, Disciples of Liberty, right? The uh, heavy lifting, I think, has begun. And uh, and I, I'm watching with amazement as, uh, you know, the, the recall effort in California to, uh, to vote uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor, out of office. Yeah, it apparently uh, fell flat. And, and the problem here is... Is it, you know, is it legitimately most Californians said, you know what, this is our guy. He's he's good. He's cool. Let's keep him. Or is it a matter of, uh, well, we've got this uh, election tinkering down to a science and we know how to do what we need to do to make sure that the outcome is always in favor of, you know, the party that's in control at the moment. Now, I know that's heresy to suggest such a thing, right? This is this is as clear an example of wrong think as you are likely to find in this year or in this time of human history. We're not even supposed to question, you know, whether the 2020 election had anything going on. But there have been some state audits going on. And, you know, I I don't I can't say this like I know definitively that uh, the election was stolen. But I know that there have been enough investigations after the fact And there have been few enough courts, in fact, almost no courts, willing to actually hear the facts in the case that uh, this is not a resolved question. Oh, yes, everything was uh, totally straightforward. It was right up front. Nobody should have any questions. No, there's a lot of questions remaining because there's a lot of smoke. Enough smoke that I think most reasonable people would be fully justified in saying, is there a fire somewhere? Should we look around? Should we see if there's, there's a problem here? But you're not allowed, right? This is a quick way to get deplatformed, at least from, you know, the major social media companies. That's not just, you know, it's not just dangerous to question such things, but you're undermining the faith in our entire democracy. Uh, As George W. Bush might put it, you're defiling the symbols of our nation by questioning whether, you know, this election was on the up and up. Now, look, again, I don't know. I'm a, I'm an average guy with average intellect, and, you know, if it looks fishy to me, and there's a lot smarter people than me that have been digging into this, it looks like there there's definitely some some things that are not accounted for. But it's hard to question this kind of stuff, right? So, you know, to, to think that, to, that we had our last honest election, or at least an election where people could really trust the results, that's a daunting thought. And I'm not trying to spoil your day by putting that idea forth. But I think we may have crossed that threshold some time ago. Maybe 2016, maybe it was some time before that. I don't know. 
I just know from this point on, I don't think elections really are going to matter as much as we want to pretend that they're going to matter. In fact, okay, I'm going to go ahead and just put the cards on the table and, you know, feel free to disagree. You are under no obligation whatsoever to agree with me. But, but if, I, if I'm making sense, I would ask you at least consider the possibility. We've been trained from a pretty early age, like about the time we hit voting age, that, you know, voting is the highest expression of citizenship. This is where you participate in the civic sacrament of our society. And I remember, you know, I remember voting for the first time. I was 18 years old. And it was kind of an honor. I got to vote for Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, won. And it was it was really cool. But I didn't have a clue. You know, what I, what I was voting for. I'll admit it. I just voted Republican because my parents were Republicans. And you know, I figured, you know, if, if Reagan's good enough for them, he's good enough, you know, for me. But voting is not nearly as important as what we do both before and after we go to the polls. And in fact, I would argue that voting in some ways may actually be contributing to the problem. Now, hear me out on this. I know that the knee-jerk reaction is, hey, you know, Again, this is the expression of our, our citizenship, and this is what being involved involves. Okay, maybe, maybe this is part of, of being engaged in society. But I have the sneaking suspicion that politicians look at elections as a sort of um, affirmation. It's validation for them that, see, see, people support whatever it is I want. And frankly, if you look at the situation we have right now, whenever some, whenever whichever side ekes out a win, and in national politics, it's usually by a very slim margin, there's a, there's a win, that means you have to do what we tell you. And lately, what we, have, what we tell you you have to do has become more and more punitive by the minute. I don't like that. And to me, it's evidence of something that I've suspected for a long time, but now I'm, I'm coming to fully believe, and that is politics is a lot less necessary than we've been led to believe. If you look at a healthy society, there are numerous institutions which operate to influence that society, to solve problems within that society. Politics, or what, I, what I'm just going to call the government is one of those institutions, right? So government is instituted. Politics is how, you know, government does its business. But you have other, other institutions that are just as important, in some cases, maybe even more important. Let me run a couple of these by you. Family is an institution. Clergy or church is an institution. Media is an institution, although it's been tough to distinguish at least mass media from government for some time. So we, we may have seen some kind of a, a little a crossover there taking place. Business is an institution. Community is an institution. Let's see if I left anything else. Family, church, business, community, media. Oh, academia, which again, notice notice how many of these institutions government has managed to assert some degree of control over. See, in a healthy society, these seven institutions that I've named for you, government is one of them, they are supposed to operate within their own spheres of influence, which means, yeah, there may be some areas that overlap, but generally, when you have a healthy society, all of those institutions are contributing within their respective spheres, and the beauty of, of most of them, six out of those seven institutions 
is they do it without force. Government is the only institution that we say, you may have a monopoly on force in these instances to make things stick, to make people do, or to punish people or prevent people from doing what isn't wanted to be done. Every other institution has to rely on voluntary compliance or persuasion to get their point across. And societies that have all of these institutions at work, family, you know, intact, you know, strong and stable. I know this is this is going to sound a lot like, hey, is he, is he swerving into a sermon here? But again, hear me out. When families are strong, would it not make sense to say that societies also have a benefit from that when there's stability within the family? And, and I understand circumstances being what they are. Not everybody has the ideal situation. But there is an ideal, or at least there's, there's a standard that once was largely adhered to by most people as this is the goal. This is what we want to try to reach. And no matter how many of us fall short of that goal, it's still the goal that's worth reaching for because we are better in the process. And that goal is a nuclear family, which I guess now is considered, you know, another symptom of all the whiteness that has poisoned our civilization. But isn't it crazy? Here we've got we've got families of a husband and wife, and maybe maybe I don't need to use these terms. Let me just put it this way. The universal model that you look across the world and you look at civilizations, large or small, um, ancient, modern, you know, primitive or very advanced, there is a very common pattern that you see and can find in every one of these societies. It's a man and a woman in a lifelong commitment. Raising children. Okay, now I've, I've tried to, you know, take as much of the political baggage off that as possible, but that is the natural pattern. And, you know, some places, you know, they they've go for, you know, well, maybe a man should have more than one wife. Okay, so there's a polygamous society. Others are, you know, have different ways they approach it. But the general standard model for human civilization is biologically opposite members of the members of the opposite sex, you know, that that pair up and are in a permanent relationship and that cooperatively raise the next generation. And I'm sorry if it's I hope I'm not being pedantic to try and explain it like this. This was something that was once well understood. But depending on where you were to ask today, hey, what is the nuclear family? Some people could give you a very quick definition. Well, it's, you know, parents and children, you know, together. Other people are going to stand there giving you a really good impression of a brook trout. Huh? <laughs> there is no such thing. They might get angry. I don't know. Look at community. What can happen when things happen on a community? Again, voluntary level. Look at uh, education detached from the state. A lot of great private schools out there that are, that are working hard to bring young minds in contact with all of the information that has been handed down through the ages before us. See, there's a difference between education and schooling. We'll have to talk about that sometime, but education is something that takes place on a consistent basis on your own time, usually in your own home, sitting on your couch, sitting at your dining table. Maybe you have a desk or an easy chair. That's where education can take place. It doesn't have to be in a classroom. Schooling takes place in a classroom, but again, that's not necessarily synonymous with education. 
clergy. Let's talk about the influence that clergy has had. I know that, that you know slavery is still a big deal in America in 2021. I don't know why. I thought the institution itself was pretty much done with by 1865 and, you know, constitutional amendment and everything to make sure you cannot have slaves. But people are still fighting that battle. I just only I point this out just because the reason slavery became an issue that people stood up and said we have to get rid of, which, by the way, Europe did without going to war. America, I don't know, you know, to what extent it played a role in the war between the states, but You know, it was definitely a dividing issue, one of the big divisions. But the key here is it was the churches. It was the it was the momentum that came from religious influences, from the clergy denouncing slavery as an affront to God and mistreatment of his creations, his children. That's what powered the abolition movement. Isn't that odd? You don't hear much about that. Now, religion is the source of oppression, and it's a bad thing, and nobody should consider it. But, you know, it played, a, it played a very key role. Business, as we can see, can play a very key role. Now, unfortunately, look at the extent to which business and government have become intertwined. Is it any surprise now that, uh, that businesses are becoming the de facto enforcers of what uh, people in government want in terms of COVID policy? What was the story? I, I just uh, just saw this come across my screen earlier. Yeah, look at this. A Texas hospital is facing closure over the COVID-19 vaccine mandate. So when the president spoke recently and said, you know, we're going to make sure that all of the healthcare workers are mandated to have the COVID-19 vaccine. Now the chief executive of a hospital in Texas is warning that his facility is facing closure because if that mandate goes through, Brownfield Regional Medical Center CEO Jerry Jasper says 20% of his, perhaps 20 to 25% of his staff will have to go away if that's the case. And losing those workers means he will have to shut his hospital down. And losing Medicare and Medicaid money isn't an option either. Apparently the White House has stipulated healthcare workers who work at hospitals and facilities that either get uh, Medicaid or Medicare funds have to get the COVID-19 vaccine strings attached yes everything you partner with government if it's giving you money if it's doing you favors you know there are going to be strings attached so jasper remarked to the tv station that was interviewing him he says look it's huge in our rural community as all the other rural communities we have high poverty levels and stuff like that so a lot of medicaid usage in our communities and stuff like that this was echoed by another local hospital executive who said, well, it would be devastating for the community, frankly. We have a large percentage of our revenue that comes from Medicaid, Medicare, and those kinds of products. That was Larry Gray, CEO of the Seminole Hospital District. Now, Gray encourages vaccines, but he says mandates don't work. He said, I think the mandate's just a terrible message. Because if the vaccinations are working, why do you have to mandate people to get the vaccines? By the way, that is a fair question. What happens to individual choice and medical decisions between the patient and their doctor, which is all of the things that we're trying to support? So, yes, sadly, business can be an influence and can be one of those contributing institutions in society. But unfortunately, when it partners up with government, well, it, it becomes government. It, it becomes sullied by, by you know, its association. 
I mean, hopefully you get the point here. When one institution or another dominates society, that's not a good thing. They're supposed to operate in a, in a kind of harmony that's at the same time a sort of competition. But there are competing, you know, for instance, there's, there's competing moral authority. This is one of the reasons why religion is so essential to a free society. Because if, if your morality is based on, well, whatever the state says is legal, that's what we're going to go with. I mean, that's, that works to a point, but it can also bite you hard. In fact, in the next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about that. When you, uh, when you, when you take away right and wrong, and especially when you take that away in the context of someone is assuming victim status, therefore everybody has to do what I say, it can lead to some really ugly places. But I want you to notice, in the most restrictive, tyrannical regimes on the face of the earth, either present day or, you know, uh, back in the past, religion was something that was always very strictly controlled and discouraged. There's a reason why totalitarian regimes cannot handle a religion that offers a competing moral authority. Now, part of it comes from the fact that, well, you know, they appeal to God. We can't, uh, we can't disprove God. We can't uh, dethrone him. So we have to pretend he doesn't exist. We cannot have somebody believing in a higher moral authority that trumps every other authority around us. Only the current regime can be the moral authority. Only they have the power to say what's right and what's wrong. But we need that competition. And if you're going to teach people, large groups of people, morality, religion really is the best way to do that. And I, I don't even know how to answer this sometimes. I, I've got a good friend, longtime listener. Um, he and I are not on the same page ideologically. We're pretty close to polar opposites. I like the guy, though. I really do, because I, he is a thinker. And there are some places where we surprisingly agree, and there's places where we clearly don't agree. But... I remain friends with him because he's a good person. He causes me to think. He holds my feet to the fire. These are the kind of things you would want in a friend. Lately, I have been getting some uh, some pretty heartfelt but uh, but dire warnings from him. I really think you need to get vaccinated, dude. He's like it just it concerns me that uh, that you haven't yet you know taken the vaccine. And and so you know for instance he just sent me a a story of up in Alberta, Canada, apparently. There's there's a great demand for the um, there's great pressure on the healthcare system and great demand for the ICUs and they're saying it's because COVID cases brought about by anti-vax sentiment are causing a collapse of the healthcare system. Now I would find that a lot easier to believe if there weren't so many conflicting numbers if we didn't have actual video proof of, uh, for instance, you know, hospital administrators discussing amongst themselves. How can we report these numbers in a way that will scare people even worse? So I'm not telling you don't get the vaccine, but I'm telling you people who have reason to question it, I think have good reason. And I don't know how to communicate to my friend without sounding like the crazy that I'm sure I appear to him. I'm sure, you know, I... I I'm, he doesn't hate me, but I'm sure he's looking at me right now. He's already told me I'm having a hard time relating to people who just don't get the vaccine. Who could? And I think, how could I help him see what I see? 
And of course, I, I have to temper this with the idea, I could be wrong. It's possible. I may be as wrong as can be. So I'll try to keep it humble, but I also know what I've seen. And I know the questions that I've seen asked that have not been answered satisfactorily. I'm not convinced that uh, what's behind you know, this push to get everybody vaccinated is in my best interest. And as long as people are going to be pushing and using coercion, um, I'm going to have to resist. I have to. Someone has to push back. I know I'm not alone in this, but, you know, I look around us and I think, man, they're doing everything they can to thin our numbers. You will either take the vaccine or you will not work or you will not be admitted into this part of society, that part of society. I mean, eventually it's going to get down to our finances. Anybody who can't see that coming, I think, is being willfully blind. It's going to get down to that social credit system that China currently has in in place. I'm not saying this is the biblical mark of the beast, but man, people who scoffed at that idea a couple of months ago have got to be looking at it going, whoo, wow, this has taken an interesting turn. But how do I communicate this to my friend? How do I help him understand? Governments need to admit, and I mean governments everywhere, need to admit they are not the proper tool to mitigate a virus. And they've lost the war with COVID because this virus is going to run its natural course until it becomes endemic. Just like the common cold, just like the yearly flu. Now, the flu is a concern, and it does kill vulnerable people each year. So it's not something to just, you know, turn your nose up at and say, oh, you know, just ignore it. But not everybody opts to get a flu shot. Why don't we? Why don't we force people to go get the flu shot? It's a, it's a certainty that flu season is going to come. It's a certainty that there's going to be that, that virus in circulation. Why don't we? In other words, where is the moral authority to force people to take the injection? And based on some of the information coming out of the UK, as well as out of Israel, personally, I'm not so sure the vaccine isn't responsible for the increased spread of COVID at this point. I mean, we know that the vaccine does not prevent the the vaccinated from either contracting or spreading the illness. They can still do it. They still have to be masked up. They still have to be socially distanced. So, yeah, there's some there's some questions to ask there. And, I, you know, it's possible that I'm just too ideologically dug in. It's possible that my friend is too dug in ideologically to, to want to see. But I don't know if you ever feel like this. I'm assuming you probably do. How do you struggle to explain what you are seeing to a world of people who largely not only don't see it, but they don't want to see it. Sometimes they will go to great lengths to make sure that they don't have to see the reality in front of us. And, and just for the record, the reality I'm referring to is that, uh, that uh, COVID may be a very real virus. And it looks more and more, according to the, the latest information that I've been able to see, that it's a man-made virus. In fact, it's not only a man-made virus, but it's a man-made virus that was created with the funding and the help of the United States government. But all these responses, all the shutting down of, of this part of the economy and telling people you're essential, you're not essential. None of that has done anything 
whatsoever to mitigate the spread of this virus. It's doing as viruses do, working its way through society. But boy, the power seekers and opportunists have been all over this. They have seized the advantage and have have fitted us for chains, you know, for shackles. And at first, people may have willingly put their wrists out. Okay, go ahead. You know, I'm scared too. I don't know what this virus is going to do. But look, we've had a year and a half to observe what works and what doesn't. Taking away people's freedoms does nothing to slow the spread of the virus. So why do the people in power persist in wanting to take away more and more freedoms? I think it's more about control and not about health, but, you know, I could be crazy too. This is the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders, and this is the America Out Loud Network. You know, Healthy Cell is a terrific lineup of products. They have products that are pill-free, gel-packed vitamins. Uh, Looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator in nutritional supplements for cell health. Healthy Cell has a product that helps REM sleep, helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep supplement. The only sleep supplement that's designed to support all stages of sleep. And boy, is it needed now during all the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any product from Healthy Cell. I use them every day. I believe in them. And you should too. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. All 
right, welcome back. This is the Disciples of Liberty Show. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders, and this is the America Out Loud Network. I hope you're showing some love to the sponsors on this network. Look, if you are if you are finding value in the information and commentary that is being sent your way, courtesy of the America Out Loud Network, by all means, pay attention to the advertisers, pay attention to these sponsors, and wherever possible, take them up on their products or on their services. If you don't need it at the moment, I bet you know someone who does. Point them in the right direction, or maybe even consider just dropping a line to them and telling them, I heard your message, and tell them where you heard it, so that they know that they are reaching your ears. So the California recall election, I want to touch on this because it appears that uh, it, it seems like Gavin Newsom is uh, he's as Teflon as many of the other politicians. He's one of the in crowd. So I guess it's not surprising that, uh, you know, they would circle the wagons and do what they could to protect him. Well, Alan Stevo, writing about the uh, the election, says there's a silver lining to this. So I know there are some people who are feeling really discouraged. Oh, dang it. They didn't even get that monster, you know, Gavin Newsom out of office in California. But there's still a silver lining just in the fact that a recall election actually took place. That puts lots of people on notice. Let me give you an example. Alan Stevo says, he, he wrote this uh, on the 14th. He says, it is recall day, September 14th. Ballots are everywhere as freely as syringes on the streets of San Francisco. People all over the state are showing up to vote and being told they already have voted. Police in California pulled over a guy with a backseat full of blank recall ballots and drugs. So Stevo says this will be the crookedest election since whatever election was the last one to take place in some third world banana republic. Now, there's only a year and some months left for whoever wins the recall. And that period in office may be significantly shortened by the inability to determine results anytime soon. So maybe one of the system's plans, he says, is to lengthen the counting process considerably and leave Newsom in his seat. Now, Alan Stevo says whoever wins the recall will have a massive government working against him or her to deal with. And this will make change hard, unless, of course, it's Newsom or a Democrat who wins, in which case the government will work for them and no change will take place. Nonetheless, Newsom is sweating. French Laundry, where he dined with lobbyists with no mask, is dragging him down. His son, going to camp with no mask, is dragging him down. Rules for thee, but not for me, is dragging him down. The leader of his party is even dragging him down, even during the honeymoon period of his time in the Oval Office. The leader of the party is more popular than even Barack Obama, with the current leader of the party having received 81 million votes, the highest vote winner of any presidential candidate ever yet somehow doesn't have the polling numbers to support that theory. In some jurisdictions, he was so popular that the people among the people that he even got more votes than there are voters. So yeah, the narrative is falling apart. And Alan Stevo says, yes, Newsom is sweating. He's begging his base for help by claiming that candidates running against him are far-right extremists. Now, these are candidates that are about as politically centric, flexible, and uniparty friendly as Marco Rubio or John Kerry. So extreme is simply not the word to describe them. Alan Stevo says Newsom is so desperate that his supporters insist abortions will become illegal in California if a recall takes place. And with the control of the legislature, the courts, and the vast bureaucracy of the executive branch, that's quite the implausible claim to make. 
Only scared people make those claims in an effort to motivate other scared people. Newsom and those who support him really know that his base isn't going to turn out for him and that this election needs to be stolen. That is their duty at every step of the process. Meanwhile, the silent majority who either won't speak to pollsters or won't tell pollsters the truth are impossible to measure. They might just be angry enough to come out and toss Newsom from office. So, he says, we're left with this reality. If the thieves don't come through for Newsom, then Newsom is toast. Now, Alan Stevo says, look, all of the above is relative noise. He says, I'd be very excited to see a new governor of California. Others are called to that fight. Here's the point where he says, I am called to rouse lions. And this is the good news. So, yep, it looks like it looks like Gavin Newsom is going to stay in office. But here's the good news of what came from this recall election. Alan Stevo says there is spiritual and cultural revival taking place in California. And it's spreading across the country. He says the true work of this recall was done every time someone signed a recall petition and said to themselves, you know, the governor really does have to go. Now, the work of this recall election was done when Newsom was forced to put other plans on hold and deal with an election for the second time in three years. Politicians love reigning over you, but they hate campaigning. So to be forced to campaign again by an unwashed mob, 40% of them Democrat voters, by the way, well, that was a pretty big slap in the face for Newsom. The work of the recall was done when all over this country, people saw what was happening in California and were emboldened by it saying to themselves, if they can get rid of their untouchable tyrant, maybe we can get rid of ours. Now, not every state has a recall process, but every state has a method for removing untouchable tyrants. He says, think back a year ago. Andrew Cuomo and Gavin Newsom were the golden boys of corona communism. They were the poster children. They were destined for the White House, but today one is gone and a second has been rendered a disgrace. Now, it would have been hard to imagine that a year ago. Only because of the momentum of the recall movement in California did Cuomo get pushed out of office. The California recall changed the tenor of everything. Now, sure, it was his grabby hands that they said cost him the job. But the search for justice for the tens of thousands of elderly and others he killed with his COVID policies was not going away, and it still might not. It wasn't his grabby hands. Alan Stevo says the nation owes a debt of gratitude to all who participated in the California recall election. He says if you dig even deeper, that is uh, still to some degree noise because it's so big picture oriented. He says the individual choices to stand up in life mean so much in concert with others. And there are even more hopeful stories. They are the individual stories of individual change. The most important actions, he says, are the ones that change you. Now, three weeks ago, a hundred or so people in Silicon Valley temporarily shut down the San Jose City Council meeting, in which councilmen were going to illegally implement a vaccine mandate. Officials ran from the meeting, and their staff even stopped answering their office phones as they hid in their offices. These members of the public committed the crime of letting themselves into a public meeting closed to the public. And though a hundred or so were there, it was a dozen or so who truly made this happen. They didn't even know each other a few months earlier. Day by day, they communicate and grow alongside each other, building their capacity in their own lives while also growing into a pride of lions that can do astounding things. How about this one? 
four weeks ago. A few hundred parents shut down a school board meeting in San Luis Obispo County. Now, the school board is used to seeing maybe a dozen people at their meetings. Well, then one night, 60 turned up to talk about masks and were shot down. Now, if you shoot down 60 people, do you really think they're going to go away? Nope. They brought back five times as many with them. Hundreds showed up two weeks later, and those who showed up weren't taking anyone's nonsense. The board's response? Close down all future meetings to the public. Now, those hundreds of angry parents aren't going to go away. The world is changed by such tireless minorities. Alan Stevo says many colleges are obediently complying with all mandates presented to them, no matter how flimsy the legality of it is. Palmer College, located in the heavily restrictive Santa Clara County, this past week decided to drop their vaccine mandate after students read the government policy and refused to let officials implement it. Within days, the policy was dropped under student advice and pressure. Individuals stood up, had the tough conversations, asked the tough questions through face-to-face conversations. Tyrants across the state are hiding on Zoom, having illegal public meetings because they can't bear to face the public. And Alan Stevo says, I've got news for them. The public will catch them. It's better to face such a massive tide of resistance early and to address it. Because if you run, you may buy yourself time. But it will come with a fury that appears to grow geometrically with the amount of force you cause them to exert to have their grievances redressed. Open meeting laws are constructed specifically to present to prevent such fury from building. He says individual action is feeding massive change. And it doesn't matter what happens on a massive level, though, but it does matter what happens on an individual level. I mean, think of these examples. Brave pastors never cho- closed their churches down. Brave businesses never closed down. Preachers are setting up tents all over California, having massive meetings despite what the authorities say. The sheep remain masked. The number of unmasked lions have tripled. They live their lives unmasked. A woman in California recently told Alan Stevo the story of how she finally rolled her mother out of her windowless nursing home room against the orders of staff and outside into the sunlight, unmasked into the loving arms of her grandchildren who hadn't seen her in 18 months. Now, that was a moment no one there will never forget, will ever forget, rather. The next time she came to visit mom, nursing home staff locked her out. She demanded to speak to the director in his office, and she told him the next time she was locked out, she wouldn't be standing in that office. Her lawyer would. Problem solved. Now, Alan Stevo says that I doubt that woman would have ever said a thing like that at any earlier time in her life. Tough times don't break us. They make us who we are. A father told him about how he refused to let his son be masked in school and how his son said he had no interest in being masked in school either. The son then lived by those words. Well, the school didn't react well, but the family was prepared. The tales of those two could fill a book all its own. Stevo says, over the past year, I've seen courage like I never imagined I might see in my life. There are stories of heroes being made all around us, but they are only heroes against our current backdrop. What they really are doing is living life as man is supposed to live it, free. He says some people use that phrase uh, like herding cats to describe leading freedom fighters. Such people don't who use that phrase, he says, seem to miss the point of freedom. Sheep need herding. Lions will not be herded. 
He who attempts to herd lions is doing the work of a fool and approaches them with the mindset of a collectivist. It is contrary to the character of a lion to be herded. The lion is not helped by such attempts, nor is a society. Freedom is had in a society by free men and free women being their own free selves as diligently as they can be. Basically, what he's saying here is the third American revolution is taking place. Economist and historian Murray Rothbard describes the first American revolution as coming before 1775. It was a change in the hearts and minds of the colonists to the point that they saw themselves as a free people and no longer as subjects. They were each the sovereign, not the crown. This shift in perspective preceded the days after 1776, which Rothbard Rothbard describes as a bloody rebellion, partially due to the overlords not recognizing that the revolution had already occurred and that the colonies could no longer be governed the way they once had. Now, Alan Stevo says this happens each time the overlords don't realize the conditions have changed and insist their hold on power gained during a different time is still a valid hold. And eventually that catches up with them. Again, this takes place with a fury that's geometrically increased according to the amount of force they require the governed to exert in order to communicate that message. Knowing when to cut and run is the most important tool of the tyrant who doesn't want his life to end in a beheading. There are only so many times an election can be stolen before a people refuse to keep playing that game. There are only so many times a rule for thee but not for me can be implemented before a people refuse to play that game. Ideally, our political leaders are smart enough to avoid bloody rebellion, but the choice is theirs. So welcome to the new American Revolution, says Alan Stevo. Cultural and spiritual revival is breaking out all over California, home by home, person by person. It's not going away. Quite to the contrary, it's going to spread from California across this country. California leads the way in many things, much of them bad recently. This will be one that will be a true treasure. Those who leave California prematurely to run elsewhere are missing the joy of living at the tip of the spear tip of such change, the joy of living daily life on the front lines of serving in a way that so truly matters. He says, in times like these, how do you serve the cause of freedom in a way that truly matters? You ready for this? Pray and obey. Be the free man you were made to be. Live that free life you were meant to live. You will ripple out freedom to all around you. Tyrants only matter in your life as much as you allow them to. They will be dealt with. Politics is downstream of culture. Eventually, they will follow or be removed. If you are called to deal with them, there's no time like the present. If you're not called to deal with them, just don't sweat them too much. You have the power. You have such power to nullify them in your own life. Just keep living that free life. Things will work out just fine. He says all human history rewards the free man who can do exactly that. For each day of freedom is better than a decade of servitude under a tyrant. I don't know. Maybe this is what I need to send to my friend who is worried that uh, if I don't uh, if I don't do the bidding of the government and others, you know, that I'm going to end up uh, dying of COVID. I don't care if I die of COVID. I don't care if I die of a heart attack. I don't care if I die in a car wreck. I refuse to live my life hiding from something that might eventually take it. At any rate, 
Love Alan Stevo. Love that commentary. I think I think he's dead on right though. Be the free person you want to be. Don't give. Don't give the president the ability to live rent free in your head. There's no need for it. I want to shift gears, and I want to share with you a, a little excerpt from a lecture from. Uh, this is from Jordan B. Peterson. And this really caught my attention because so much of the the violence that we are seeing around us in society is based on victimhood. And I know you you can probably think of what I'm talking about. All the protests, in quotation marks, last year, the mostly peaceful protests with all that flaming rubble and people beaten and shot and stabbed. Yes, yes, those protests. Well, can a sense of victimhood be used to radicalize a population into embracing genocidal policies? I think that's a question worth asking, and I think you will really appreciate the way Jordan B. Peterson answers this question. Check out this audio from his uh, illustrated lecture. And so... One of the things that Maya and I found when we were writing this paper, we were looking at the discourse that precedes genocide in genocidal states. And the enhancement of a sense of victimization on the part of one of the groups, usually the group that's going to commit the genocide, first of all, their sense, as vi- their sense of being victims is much heightened by the demagogues who are trying to stir up this sort of hatred. So they basically say, look, you've been oppressed in a variety of ways, and these are the people who did it, and they're not going to stop doing it, and this time we're going to get them before they get us. It's something like that. And so there's something very pathological about the enhancement of victimization, which is, well... See, that the problem, as far as I, I'm concerned with it, is it's not, it's not thought through very well. Because there's, there's a point that's being made, and the point is that People have been oppressed and they suffer. And that's true, that point. But that's... But then the proper framework from within which to interpret that, I believe, is that that's characteristic of life. You you, you can't take it personally in some sense. And you can't divide the world neatly into perpetrators and victims. And you certainly can't divide the world neatly into perpetrators and victims and then assume that you're only in the victim class and then assume that that gives you certain, like, access to certain uh, forms of redress, let's say. It gets dangerous very rapidly if you do that sort of thing. So, for example, one of the things that characterized the Soviet Union, and this was particularly true in the 1920s, but but afterwards, so the, the Soviets were very much enamored of the idea of class guilt. So, for example, although it was only about 40 years previously that the serfs had been emancipated, they weren't much more than slaves, right? And so that was the bulk of the Russian population. They were bought and sold along with the land. So they had been emancipated, and, and some of them, many of them had turned into independent farmers, and some of them had become reasonably prosperous because at least in principle, I I presume a certain proportion of them from being crooked, but I presume a larger proportion from actually being able to raise food. And, of course, at that time, the bulk of the Russian food population was produced by these relatively successful peasant farmers. And relatively successful would mean maybe they had a brick house or something, and 
maybe they had a couple of cows and maybe they were able to hire a few people and so you know it wasn't like they were massive landowners or anything but I've talked to you a little bit about the Pareto principle and the notion that in any domain of activity a small proportion of people end up producing most of what's in that domain of activity the same was true in Russia with regards to these peasant farmers some of them were extraordinarily efficient and they produced most of Russia's food when the communists came in they described those those landholders as parasites essentially predicated on the Marxist idea that if someone had extracted profit from an enterprise that they had basically stolen that profit from 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 the people say that they had employed or otherwise oppressed and so you could be a member of the kulak k-u-l-a-c-a-k k-u-l-a-k you could be a member of the kulak class and then because you were a member of that class you were automatically guilty and so what happened was and you got to think this through to really understand what happened so what happened was the intellectual communists were sent out in cadres out into these little towns to find people who would help them round up the kulaks now you got to think about what a small town is like because so imagine you're in a town and there's three or four people or maybe ten people or something like that who are a little more successful than everyone else and a certain number of people are going to be fine with that and maybe even happy about it because they regard those people as particularly productive and you know as stalwart members of the community regardless of their flaws but there's going to be some people who are not happy about it at all that are going to be very resentful about that and jealous and so those are going to be people whose characters I would say are of the less positive type and so when the intellectuals came in and described the reason that these people should be treated as parasites and profiteers then it was the resentful minority in those towns and that would be the kind of guy that hangs around in the bar all the time and is completely unconscientious and fails at everything and then blames everyone else for it the intellectuals came in and said here's this is unfair that this happened to you you've actually been victimized and now it's your opportunity to go have your revenge and so that's exactly what happened now in some of the villages some of sometimes the peasants would actually surround the, 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 the farmsteads of these more successful people and try to defend them, but that never worked out for very long. And so then these mobs, these angry mobs, would go into the farmhouses and strip the place right down to nothing. And they packed these people up and sent them on trains with no food at, out to Siberia, where there was no place to live. And so that they were packed into houses. You know, maybe they had a square meter each to live in, and all the children died of typhoid. And, and, and many of them froze to death. Many, many people died. Millions of people died as a consequence of the dekulakization. At least in, in, as a consequence of its total effect. So what happened then was that uh, th- there wasn't any food produced. And so then six million Ukrainians starved to death in the 1920s, which is something you never hear about, right? You never hear about that. Why do you never hear about that? That's a question worth asking. You know, it was an absolute catastrophe. They used to, so these people were starving, right to the point of cannibalism, right? I mean, it was ugly, as ugly as anything you could possibly imagine. If you were a mother, and, and so you're supposed to hand all your grain into the central committee, mostly for distribution into the cities. You didn't get to keep any for yourself. And so maybe then afterwards, if you were a mother, you'd go out in the fields that had already been uh, harvested, and you'd pick up individual grains of wheat and if you didn't turn those in, they'd sh- that was death for you. So that's how far it was pushed. So, well, so that's a little story about 
how victimization, how the idea of victimization and, and perpetration can get out of hand extraordinarily rapidly. And so whenever people are beating the victim drum, you know, they'll cover that up with, with uh, empathy, roughly speaking. We're speaking on behalf of the oppressed. It's like, maybe you are, but maybe you're no saint because, you know, you're so sure that you're a saint and you're only speaking from a, the position of good. It's highly unlikely. Very good stuff there from Jordan B. Peterson. And again, this is the dangers of victimhood. I really love the illustrated uh, videos that After School does. I don't know if you've seen these, but they are they are extremely good. And I just I love the idea that uh, there's there's a humility in in what uh, Jordan B. Peterson teaches and and what he preaches. For instance, I like that he says it is much more psychologically appropriate to assume that you are the enemy, that it's your weakness and insufficiencies that are damaging the world, than to assume a saint-like goodness on the part of you and your party to pursue an enemy that you're inclined to see everywhere. Does that not ring true? I think back to the, there's a story told, um, I think it's G.K. Chesterton, who at the time was becoming a fairly well-known writer throughout the world, and he was uh, he was given the opportunity to to write something I think that would be published worldwide. This was this was a big deal. And in the days where, you know, we didn't have internet and things weren't transmitted, you know, instantly, you know, to, to have to have the world's stage to, to state your opinions, that's really something. I mean, think of this. If you were given the opportunity to give a message to the world, this will reach as many people as possible, what would your message be? In fact, We'll take it one step further, because the question he was asked to answer is, what is wrong in the world? And so G.K. Chesterton sat down and he uh, he tackled that question. What is wrong in the world? Now, I know there are those of you and myself, too, that could, depending on the day, I mean, it would take reams of paper for me to explain everything that's wrong with the world, at least from where I'm sitting at this moment. But think about the things that you might list keeping in mind that you're going to be speaking to a worldwide audience. What is wrong in the world? You know what his response was? He responded with uh, the, those who had sent the inquiry to him, would you please write an essay on this subject? You know, what is wrong in the world? His answer was, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Do you understand what that means? The focus in changing the world starts with us first. If there's something wrong in the world, yeah, we may have a duty to fix it, but we have to start by fixing whatever is wrong with us first. And, you know, I know Jordan Peterson used the, uh, you know, the communist revolution, you know, the Bolsheviks coming into power and Stalin punishing those kulaks in the Ukraine, instituting famine that took tens of millions of people to their graves. That's pretty ugly. But you know what else was ugly that borrowed from the same kind of thinking? And that would be the French Revolution. That saint-like assumption of we are so good, we are so pure and so righteous, we cannot be wrong. And in fact, anyone who agrees with us is an existential threat and must be silenced, as in have their head chopped off. That's scary. 
But that's one of the things that can happen when a person starts wielding victimhood as, as you know, the, the solution. They, they weaponize guilt. And because I'm a victim and you should feel guilty, you have to do everything that I say. Now, there have been times where I've had people approach me with that attitude and I've just had to tell them right up front, I'm sorry, I'm not accepting guilt today. Thank you for engaging me, but I'm not accepting any guilt, so, you know, have a good day. And you got to walk away. And you got to keep walking because they will not want you. No, come back here. You must have this struggle with me. Come to your struggle session. <laughs> I'm not telling you you got to go out there and pick fights. Personally, I don't think that accomplishes much of anything. But if you're serious about being a good influence in the world, you cannot do it from the standpoint of I'm a victim and therefore I should have control over other people. Jordan Peterson perfectly illustrates just how dangerous that mindset can be. And I think we're seeing it being played out in front of us right now. Think about, uh, again, I hate to pick on Black Lives Matter, or at least the, the folks who were affiliating with them, who were marching up to people in restaurants and demanding, raise your fist, chant the chant, say the chant. You know, it's like... Tell me again, you guys You guys are fighting against fascism by going around and forcing people to chant in unison with you or face violence. Right. Sometimes I think we really do live in kind of a, a bizarre world. But hey, it's where we are. It's where we're going to make our splash. So let's do it the best we can. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders.